what Bernie Sanders has done is not uh, necessarily change politics for a generation. He's changed politics for a generation. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show, and right now during our summer fundraiser, you can help support this show and great climate change and sustainability organizations by donating to my climate ride and becoming a member of the show at the same time. When you do both, you can receive a free Best of the Left t-shirt made of recycled materials as a thank you gift. Just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the summer fundraiser banner for all the details. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Jim Hightower, the Tom Hartman program, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, On the Media, and The Majority Report. The Bernie for President campaign is over, but the political revolution that he launched against corporate rule is just beginning. Sanders and close advisors are now strategizing and developing a new organizational structure to keep growing the grassroots rebellion. But a multitude of Bernie supporters are not waiting on a smoke signal from headquarters. Their percolate-up creativity has already burst into new political organizing projects that are advancing this energized populist movement. One such effort got underway just three days after the final Democratic primary. Some 3,000 Berniecrats from across America gathered in Chicago for the People's Summit. Rather than being morose or cynical about Sanders not winning the nomination, attendees were exuberant about the movement that he galvanized. This extraordinary event was a combination of tent revival and a big workshop for strategizing, organizing, and mobilizing. This two-day summit was convened by National Nurses United and co-sponsored by more than 50 diverse and effective democracy-building groups. This meeting had a minimum of the usual blah-blah and a maximum of planning on how to put experienced, local-based organizers and volunteers directly into growing the movement, starting now. These ever-larger and broader local coalitions will, one, be rooted in principled anti-corporate policies, two, launch direct grassroots initiatives and actions on a range of populist issues, three, recruit, train, and elect thousands of movement candidates to school boards, city councils, state legislatures, and other offices, four, deepen the relationships and sense of shared purpose in this revolutionary democratic movement, and five, make it fun putting the party back in politics. This is Jim Hightower saying, for more information, go to thepeoplesummit.org, thepeoplesummit.org. The millennial polls are showing that as a nation, an entire generation is, is, has moved politically uh, from the generations preceding it. Uh, we're seeing this uh, in part in the Sanders phenomena. We're seeing this in part in, in the Occupy movement, in the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's happening all over the country in a whole lot of different ways. I'm curious your thoughts and what you, what you know about this. What's really interesting, because I actually talked about that earlier today, too, is the fact that what Bernie Sanders has done is not necessarily change politics for a generation. He's changed politics for a generation. 
I mean, there's such a difference there because we have these 18 to 35 year olds right now who are coming up in what really is a horrible political time for them. All that they have known in American politics since coming of age. Let me give you the list here. Lewinsky and impeachment, 9-11, the Iraq war, Wall Street corruption and no uh, prosecutions, the Tea Party, Donald Trump, Citizens United, government shutdowns. That's the impression of politics that this generation has. And Bernie Sanders uh, came out, well, he's always been, uh, you know, a, a unique breed of politician. But finally, this generation gets to see that. They finally see him on the national stage. They get to know what he's about. And they say, yes, finally, we hear somebody addressing our concerns, uh, talking about the issues that actually matter to us, the generation who is going to be leading this country in a very short time. Other politicians don't seem to care as much. I mean, we have Bill Clinton out there today talking about the fact that, oh, well, these millennials, they're being duped by Bernie Sanders. They need to wake up. They, they just don't get how politics work. And I think it's the exact opposite. I think they get how politics works. They just haven't been corrupted yet. They're not disillusioned quite yet. They're not cynical about politics at this point. And so I think that's why democratic socialism really hits home with the, this generation because it can work for them. It can work for this country. And that's what Bernie Sanders has created with this movement. He has shaped the political philosophy of 18 to 35 year olds. And I, I, I sincerely hope that they carry it with them for the rest of their lives. Oh, I, I, I think they will. And in fact, there's there's old research. I've, I wrote about this back years ago, in, in uh, I think it was in the last hours of ancient sunlight, back in the 80s, about how, or in the early 90s, uh, research finding that it, it, the political worldview that a person has between the ages of 16 and 21 is the most consistent predictor of what their political worldview will be in their 60s. It's the one single thing that is the most consistent predictor. And that's one of the reasons why, and when that research was originally done, actually, back in the late 1950s, early 1960s, what came out of that was the Young Republican Movement. And this was when the, the Republicans said, okay, we've got to get these kids, uh, you know, the, the young ones, the Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, when that came out. And that, that was, you know, back in the 60s. I remember that very well. I mean, it might have been around for a while on that. But it's like, uh, yeah, it's it, this is a generation that is, has has seen the world in a different way. I'm curious your thoughts on on, a, on another dimension of that. Um, could it be that uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, the uh, the web in general are causing are, are making it possible for young people, for the millennial generation, to see that there are places in the world where things absolutely don't work and they're terrible and for many of the same reasons that american politics ha have been corrupted you know corporations taking over whatever corrupt politicians and on the flip side of it they can also see that people in sweden and norway and denmark and germany and france and you know the list goes on and on have a pretty damn good life and whereas you know one of the most successful i think uh, efforts on the part of the conservatives in the in the, in the united states in my lifetime was keeping us all ignorant of what life was like in Europe, frankly. Without a doubt. And it's interesting because this generation has more access to knowledge and just other human beings throughout the world 
than at any other time in American history or world history, really. And so they do get to see how things operate. They get to learn what other countries offer that the United States does not. I mean, universal health care, the fact that we do not offer that in America, that makes us unique and it makes us weaker. You know, the fact that we do not have paid maternity leave guaranteed, paid vacation time guaranteed. We look at all of these other countries that do offer that and we say, why not here? Mm. So I, I, I think this generation, by simply the virtue of knowing that there are better options out there and that they work, I think that's going to shape them just as well. And look, I mean, we already have seen the power of social media just when it comes to organizing. I mean, Occupy Wall Street, Uncoke My Campus, Frack Free America. These organizations are out there and people now know about it. And that's the Mm. big difference is that they know I'm not the only one. Yeah, this look at, group look at of people long, represents what I want. Look at how long Alec ran under the radar. I mean, Alec was started back in the late seventies, uh, and uh, and and nobody even knew that they were there. And they have been writing legislation for Republicans to introduce in state legislatures for forty years, and and it's just in the last couple of years that anybody has even realized that they're there. It, it is interesting, just thinking about what we know today what this generation coming up uh, and it, i mean it's a generation that i'm a part of mm-hmm. i'm at the very tail end of the age group there but but i'm still technically a part of it and we can know things now again that we couldn't have known in the 90s i mean alec is a fantastic example and just with the prevalence uh, of social media and independent media we have full coverage of things like Citizens United. We can track a politician's campaign donations from the start of their career at this point. And those are things that, you know, a decade ago, 15 years ago, we could not do. And the best part about it is that these kids are actually out there and they do it. They look it up. They find out information. I mean, I, I have seen some of my younger followers on Twitter send me information that I had no idea even existed. Mm -hmm. So even somebody who's been doing this for more than a decade, we could still learn from these guys because they're out there every day because they want to know. They want to help expose this. They want to be a part of it, but they want the system to work better. It's not that they hate the system. It's it's that they see that it's not working. I mean, we only have about 15% of that age group that says, yes, the government works properly like it should. That's a problem. 15% of them have faith in the government. 85%, not so much. And that's why, again, we, we come back to Bernie Sanders. They see what we could have, what we could do, what one person is capable of creating in this country, which is the fact that he's running this campaign without any corporate money and came pretty dang close to winning it. So people power can work. It does work, and it has worked. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew. 
eat hog moths confiscated from the Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. Naomi, I wanted to ask you a question. The international aspect of this, we are not in isolation, what is going on here, whether it's uh, Syriza or Podemos or across the world, there is a people's fight back going on. And this is only a reflection of that. I'm wondering your, your sense of that from your travels. Yeah, I mean, there has been this migration from the streets uh, mm -hmm. to forming political parties. And it's complicated, right? Because I completely agree that all of this work on the electoral front and, and, and the diversifying and that on every level and brand new Congress, it's really, really important. But we also have to remember that movements produce this moment, right? So I think that we have to, we, are do, we have to do something really complicated where we have to we have to build out all of these electoral possibilities while understanding that these politicians will be nothing unless they are backed by social exactly. movements and accountable to those social movements, right? Yep. I mean, there would be no Bernie moment without the fight for 15, Keystone XL, the movement against fracking, Black Lives Matter, the immigrant right. rights movement, right. all of it, right? Um, so. It's not an either or, and I think that that's what's really beautiful about the way we're moving forward is understanding how do we complement each other? How do we make sure that we don't, um, because I think with some of these movements, right, they went too far in, right? I mean, talk, speaking to right. some friends in Spain who, you know, um, who, who went from the squares to Podemos, realizing that they, you know, it was, they lost that street power. Syriza as well, right? And so, you know, everybody is in this process of learning. We're all, um, you know, we're all in communication with each other. I mean, I remember being in Zakati Square and having people from um, Spain and Egypt there and that cross-pollination that fed the movements uh, at the grassroots level and are now giving each other ideas at the political level. And by the way, the Podemos leadership will be the first to tell you that they learned from uh, left-wing movements in Latin America. They, you know, they, they went to Ecuador, they went to Bolivia, you know. Um, so we are in conversation, and I'll tell you a funny story. And you know, I, I have dual citizenship. I'm Canadian. Um, I, I only tell this among friends um, that my, I'm a child of draft dodgers. We came during the Vietnam War. <laughs> and um, but 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 my father works in healthcare, so we left the U.S. because of the war. But we stayed for the healthcare, uh, for the universal single payer healthcare. It works, by the way. Um, anyway, so we, you know, we found ourselves in a, I want to back up a little bit too around, it. I just want to insert one, one point, and I feel my friend Bill McKibben on stage with me now who's, you know, fighting in a sweaty Phoenix hotel room trying to get the best you know, best language in the Democratic Party platform possible, trying to make sure it has strong anti-fracking language and strong language saying we can't be handing out any new fossil fuel leases on federal lands. You know, he's in there. And if Bill were here and he wishes he was here, you know what he would say? We got a deadline, folks, <laughs> you know? Um, yes, we're winning. Um, but we don't have all the time in the world. And right. This is the thing about climate change is we, you know, we, um, 
whoever the next president is, they come to power with their backs up against the wall when it comes to climate change, which means there's no honeymoon, baby. Um, there's no give her a chance, you know. I mean, we have to be in there demanding um, no new fossil fuel infrastructure. We need to build the infrastructure of the future. No fossil fuel money. We're going to shame them for every dollar they take from an oil and gas company, from a coal company, um, every meeting they take. Yeah. We're going to make it toxic, right? Um, so, you know, I, I'm a writer, as I mentioned, um, and I think deadlines help. You know, this is the thing about climate change is it says um, we, we have to turn this around by the end of this decade. No, no joke our emissions have to be pointing in a different direction. The challenge we face is how do we transform our energy system, recognizing that we live at a time of multiple overlapping crises. That yes, climate change is an urgent crisis banging down our doors, but so is racial injustice, so is economic inequality. So are all of these other crises we face. So we're not gonna play my crisis is bigger than your crisis, first we'll save the planet, then we'll worry about jobs, no. We are going to figure out ways to lower emissions while healing the wounds that date back to the founding of our countries. And it is possible to do. Um, so in, in Canada, um, we found ourselves in a situation not dissimilar to the one that you, know, you are finding, your, finding yourselves in, um, where we had an election a year ago. and. Um, and, and mostly the energy of that election on the progressive side was the energy of no. This is before everybody got really excited about our hot new prime minister. It was just about getting rid of our right wing uh, government. And, um, and, and so it was very much a no vote. It was very much a strategic vote. And none of the major progressive alternatives, so called progressive or liberal alternatives, we're taking climate change seriously. We're connecting economic injustice, racial injustice, uh, injustice towards indigenous people, and the need to act swiftly and with boldness in the face of the climate crisis. And so a group of us uh, got together, 60 uh, movement organizers and leaders, and we wrote our own people's platform called the Leap Manifesto. And it um, and we launched it right in the middle of the election platform. This was our attempt to say our dreams don't fit on your ballot. We are gonna vote out the worst guy, but that does not represent the world we want. We created space to dream. Um, and, uh, and what was interesting, just it was that platform, um, the Leap Manifesto was just uh, um, sort of endorsed by one of our major political parties, the New Democratic Party, and it was the young people. They resolved, they endorsed it in spirit and resolved to debate it at the riding level across the country. And it was the young people in the party that drove it. And I was watching this play out. I wasn't at the convention. Um, but the young people, several of them were wearing Bernie t-shirts. As they were, as they were making their impassioned pleas, that that now is the time for boldness. That we can, that small steps are not enough. So we are all feeding each other's movements, and we're all drawing strength from each other. When I envision new horizons, be a big revolution to see my solutions come arising. But you've won. A big victory has been risen. If you were checking the current system in the way in which you're living, every song I've written is about more than music. We don't have to be living in this system. I can prove it. You heard a people's movement in the people's music for revolution. Can't expect the current system to make solutions.
They romanticize Dr. King's dream of racial equality, but not his dream of society rejecting violence, paying livable wages. They teach us we can and should be pro athletes, movie stars, models, business moguls, or inventors of frivolous technology, like high definition TV. That was really important. It's more important to people starving, being unable to find jobs, being unable to live. Stop defending the system, join the resistance, human need over profit. That's the needed revolution. Bernie Sanders has been attacked pretty harshly over the course of the past week by his former supporters or current supporters. It's kind of hard to tell in some cases today if people actually support him, but they've been attacking him because of his endorsement of Hillary Clinton. As if endorsing Hillary or not endorsing Hillary was the only thing that Bernie Sanders planned on doing in politics for the course of the rest of his life, which I don't believe and he doesn't believe, and he's made clear for a long time that revolutions are not about one election. They're about much more than that. And to that end, he announced today uh, some of the steps he's going to be taking going forward to put that revolution into actual effect outside of the context of whoever wins this presidential election or whatever happens at the convention. And there are three organizations that he has proposed so far. We have some initial details on those. The Sanders Institute will help raise awareness of enormous crises facing Americans, which I take to mean continuing to push forward Bernie's core message, which has always been about the enormous crises facing America and Americans. The Our Revolution political organization will help recruit, train, and fund progressive candidates' campaigns. And a third political organization, which is currently unnamed, may play a more direct role in campaign advertising. And as an example of what he plans to use those last two for, uh, Sanders plans to support at least 100 candidates running for a wide range of public offices from local school boards all the way up to congressional seats, at least through the 2016 elections. So if you thought that, oh, it was just vague language about making sure that we run a grassroots campaign, that we don't just compete for one uh, elected position, but the entire range from top to bottom, from the East Coast to the West Coast, No, he is actually putting that into effect right now as we speak. And we have a couple of quotes from Bernie about what exactly these organizations are intended to accomplish, what message he's sending to the Democratic Party. He says, if we are successful, what it will mean is that the progressive message and the issues that I campaigned on will be increasingly spread throughout the country. The goal here is to do what I think the Democratic establishment has not been very effective in doing, and that is at the grassroots level. Encourage people to get involved, give them the tools they need to win, help them financially. And so he is preparing for whether it's Hillary that wins the presidency or if it's Trump, that the progressive movement needs to continue to grow in the same way that it grew enormously over the eight years of Barack Obama's presidency. It doesn't even matter if you have a Democratic president in office. You still need to make sure that people are learning, people are getting involved, and they're being educated and informed about what's going on in the country. And that is what he is doing. And he also said this, The way to go forward is to build a progressive movement around a very progressive agenda. What you're seeing is more traditional Democrats, more establishment Democrats, move in our direction because they see the support out there for our ideas. And that is exactly what we have seen over the course of the past eight years. The country has changed. People have changed and their views have changed. And the Democratic politicians have been forced to begrudgingly move in that direction. And that's what he sees uh, going forward. That's what he sees his role to be. It's unfortunate. We all wanted him to be president, but this is incredibly important, perhaps more important in the long run, that we don't just elect a president, but that we change a country from top to bottom. And I think that we can all agree that these are good steps, necessary steps, not completely surprising steps, since he is putting into effect what he's been saying for a long time that he's going to do. 
Now, many people are still going to be pissed off at him because he endorsed Hillary Clinton, and they're not fans of Hillary Clinton, and that's fine. They're entitled to their opinions. But bear in mind that Bernie Sanders is not exactly new to this. He's not unwise. He's not a naive kind of guy. And there's every chance in the world that he understands just a little bit more about how to put the revolution into effect going forward than some of his anonymous critics online. I believe Bernie Sanders' political rebellion will persevere is that it's organic. Rather than being an artificial marketing creation sprouted in some D.C. hothouse by national groups and moneyed interests, this is a wildflower movement that sprang up spontaneously, took root, and spread its seeds across thousands of zip codes. Contrary to the conventional wisdom of most political pundits, his supporters are not giving up on politics. Why would they? After all, This talented core of pro-democracy activists seemingly came out of nowhere, won 23 states, virtually tied in five others, and revolutionized the Democrats' message, policy agenda, and method of campaigning, so they're eager to push forward. I've been out there among them for months, from Great Falls to Cedar Falls, Carson City to New York City, and most recently at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. No way they're going to burn out and fold for they are battling the gross inequality and corporate rapaciousness that has a stranglehold on our democracy and on their own well-being. They don't see their involvement as part of the usual political game, but as the real politics of America, the ongoing historic struggle by everyday people to democratize our country's wealth and power to benefit all and serve the common good. This is Jim Hightower saying, Bernie's success emerged like a grito, a long-suppressed shout of rebellion from the battered soul of working-class America. It sprang in part from people's anger at being run over, then ignored, by the corporate and political elites. But as Bernie's message spread through mass rallies and social media, it became obvious that the rebellion is also motivated by hope, a deep belief in and a yearning for egalitarian America, a society dedicated to democracy's fundamental principles. We're all in this together. Keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward. Never turning back. Never turning back. And so now, after a vicious year of primaries, caucuses, debates, and drama, and the winnowing of 20-some contenders, now we are down to two, each facing off for the final prize with their parties, unified as one, behind them. (laughs) Just kidding. 
A leaked email scandal rocking the Democratic Party, taking down the head of the DNC. Chaos and a cascade of boos as the convention begins. Chaos at the convention proves again the party's divided, proves Donald Trump cannot control the Republicans. Researchers say Harry Potter's arch-villain Lord Voldemort has a more favorable rating among young adults than both the leading presidential candidates. On the right, the Republican Party, in a mad rush to contain a nominee who seems intent on sabotaging his own candidacy by insulting everything that moves, including babies and the party's leaders. On the left, a different anxiety has taken hold, not about an out-of-control candidate, but about corralling a restive base. Some Bernie Sanders supporters still vowing to never vote for Hillary. I'm telling you, Jill Stein's looking a heck of a lot better than those Bernie Sanders supporters right now. Green Party candidate for president, Dr. Jill Stein, made an appeal to the group of Bernie Sanders supporters who still aren't sold on Hillary Clinton. To any Democrat who would bypass Clinton, the party's message is clear. Based on her ideas and her leadership, Hillary Clinton must become the next president of the United States. So the Democratic Party frets and the media speculate. Will the Bernie bros fall in line behind the anointed candidate? Or will they cut off their noses to spite the status quo and cast crucial votes for the no-chance Green Party? Or is there perhaps another way? Nathan J. Robinson is editor-in-chief of the progressive political magazine Current Affairs. Robinson is a staunch Clinton critic and Sanders booster, but he doesn't believe that he has to compromise on either of those things when he pulls the lever for Clinton in November. Nathan, welcome to OTM. Good to be here. You and your publication are consistently critical of the Democratic establishment and of the Clintons in particular, and you've written very favorably about Bernie, you even wrote in February that only he could beat Donald Trump in a general election. And yet, two weeks before the Democratic National Convention, you wrote a piece arguing that many leftists, such as yourself, should in fact vote for Hillary Clinton. Explain to me why that is not a sellout. So the main thing I'm saying is not actually that most Democrats who are critical of Clinton should vote for Clinton. The basic premise of the argument is that we should think about voting differently. The way I think of voting is that you should think about the potential consequences of your vote. That's the most important thing. Uh, voting isn't necessarily a way to say who you are and what you care about. It's something that has consequences. So actually, for the vast majority of people who live in 40-some-odd states who are critical of Clinton on the left, they can go ahead and vote for third party because it doesn't make a difference. But you're saying if you live in Pennsylvania or Ohio or in right. Virginia or uh, other states deemed to be battleground states, you've got to think about the resource that is your vote and how best to deploy it. Right, because there could be consequences to what you do. I think those consequences are the most important thing. You know, people are critical of the term lesser evil. Well, you just want us to vote for the lesser evil. Of course we do, because you want less evil in the world. You don't have to diminish at all or trivialize how critical you are of the Clintons. Like, I think they're everything that's wrong with American politics and what have you. The only question is, is it less or is it more? And in the situation of Trump, 
some the questions people are asking is, does this threaten to end the species, right? If someone's talking freely about nuclear war, someone that unhinged and has that much access to power, it's a very, very dangerous situation. It's obviously worse than the threat that Clinton's posed. Now, I want to talk to you about standing by your principles. I could keep you on the line for hours with the argument that a principled vote for what I believe in should not be sacrificed for something so soiled as pragmatic politics. Am I wrong? Well, see, this is the thing is I think this has a very strange and sort of romantic conception of what voting is, where voting is the way that we express our innermost identities and we declare who we are and what we stand for. I don't think of voting that way. I think of voting as something that you do five minutes, one day of the year, and that most political action and most expression of your moral convictions should occur elsewhere in other realms. Voting is just about the consequences. And the other point is, I don't think of pragmatism as the compromise of your values. Being pragmatic is an enactment of your values. Your values are that you care about what you do in the world. This approach to voting, the strategic approach, doesn't require you to stop being critical. Because what you say is, look, look, on election day, clearly I'm going to keep Trump out of office. But in the meantime, I don't have to keep silent because my vote is strategic. It's not a full endorsement and it doesn't diminish the force of my criticisms. All right. Well, this gets to something you were alluding to earlier, and that is whether the presidential election every four years is really the place for these protests to be taking place. Yeah, that's what I actually object to the most. I think we overinvest ourselves in the moral significance of our presidential election ballot and we agonize over it as if that's the way to say who we are. Democrats have lost half of their governorships. They're doing very badly in Congress and at the state level and at the local level. And it's really important to fight those fights. And yet we put all of our time into thinking about the presidential election and what does it say if we vote for Jill Steiner? What does it say if we vote for Hillary Clinton? I think it's a decision that should take you five minutes and then the rest of the year get on with other things that have political consequence and meaning for people. Meanwhile, for the last 25 years, with a lot of Koch brother money, the Republicans have been locking up state legislatures and governorships, creating an almost invulnerable majority in the House of Representatives where they can actually, you know, pass laws. (laughs) Yeah, the Republicans know what they're doing. If the left is serious about pursuing their goals, they should adopt those tactics instead of having an internal argument over whether they should vote for Jill Stein, even though the only possible consequence of that argument is that the Green Party goes from 2% to 4%. It's possible that you could pull the Democrats to the left, but I think really what happens when you show that you can throw the election is they move to the right and they try and pick up Republican voters, which is what Hillary Clinton's doing. She's seeking to pick up moderate and conservative voters. So instead of that, they should be strategizing about how do we get progressive policies passed at every level of government? How do we challenge moderate and right-wing democratic incumbents? How do we get our agenda enacted in the real world rather than this very, very abstract notion of how you express your principles? Hey, 
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So Digby, in the last hour, we were talking about, um, and, and in some ways, I mean, you know, this is, um, this is pretty exciting for for folks like us who, uh, during the Bush administration, we were uh, hoping to push the party uh, to the left. And in many respects, um, it was really just about sort of, I guess, staunching the bleeding. Maybe I'm using the wrong verb there. Uh, and and then I think, you know, there was also an awareness coming out of the Bush years that a lot of the people that we thought were our allies weren't necessarily our allies, but in that they shared a... Um, they shared a problem with uh, with having George Bush as the president. And um, and to a large extent, I think uh, the Obama presidency sorted a lot of that out uh, in many respects. And uh, what was what's interesting to me about comparing this time in 2008 versus, uh, you know, today is that there's a there's a lot more specific proposals and it doesn't look like that necessarily uh, Clinton will be in a position to uh, execute them per se. We, we don't know. But there's a lot more specific proposals that are defining the Democratic Party. You know, it's one thing to say we're going to change stuff, uh, which is what uh, President Obama did. But uh, beyond the, the health care proposal, which was, you know, by obviously a huge uh, proposal, um, there seems to be a lot of very specific proposals that we can now say are democratic um, uh, positions. And there is still, I think they haven't quite squared the circle on sort of a broader message. But this is the type of proactive message that we've been talking about for years that the Democrats have lacked. And um, I think it's I think it's fairly encouraging at this point. And I think Clinton is going to carry this ideological message into the uh, the general in a way that I don't think she would have if it was a Jeb Bush or, or, or someone, I, mean, I think uh, because she has the room to do it now, it seems. Well, that's what I think. Now, you know, you and I are going to get some, probably get some blowback on that from people who think that she really wants to enact a cons- more conservative agenda. And she's only saying these things to give lip service in the, in the primary. I mean, well, we I mean, see. but she might, she might, she might. Uh, possible, but, but, but but the thing that I I hope people understand, I think you know this too, is that like it, it's it, she very well may be not saying what she wants to do. But I, I watched net neutrality, 
And I don't know what was in Barack Obama's heart about net neutrality, but I know that his promise in 2008 to pursue net neutrality ended up being a huge fulcrum to motivate people to activism that ended up getting us net neutrality. So I don't care exactly. what Hillary Clinton believes in her heart. I don't care. Exactly. And we can't know that anyway. So, you know, that's just, that's irrelevant, really. I mean, this idea that, you know, well, you know, she feels it in her bones, you know, that neoliberalism in her bones or something. I just, I don't care. Even if she does, it doesn't really matter. She's a professional politician and she is going to do, I believe, what, you know, she believes will create a successful presidency as a mainstream democratic president. Right. And, you know, wherever the mainstream is, which right now it's, it's really quite progressive. I think that's where she'll land. Now, you know, that doesn't speak. I'm not, I'm not condemning her character for that one way or the other. I think that's how most politicians operate. Um, I do think, you know, her history suggests that she has, you know, been as liberal as anybody at various times and that she, you know, has not hesitated to carry liberal, you know, progressive messages. I think she's a genuine feminist. I mean, there are plenty of things about her that I think, indicate in her record that, you know, she's, she's certain that she's, you know, conservative in some ways and liberal in others, like most mainstream politicians are. Um, but her, you know, I think that what's happened is, you know, it would be very easy and it must be tremendously tempting. If you, if you were to accept that she's following the Clintonite playbook, the playbook would be, ooh, we've got an opportunity to grab a bunch of Republicans here who don't like Trump. Let's go right because, you know, let's start talking about tax cuts. Let's start talking about the kind of stuff that those college-educated white people who are Republicans, those people, the Jeb Bush people, you know, those people, let's let's say what they want to hear. And I haven't heard that yet. I mean, I don't know no. what it would be exactly. I mean, maybe it's tax cuts or whatever, but I haven't heard that. And and it's possible that she'll shift dramatically that way, but I, there's there's not been a... A strong indication. I mean, she's had the nomination for months. I mean, I guess the Bernie endorsement may have been some holdup, but I don't know. What, did it really make that big a difference in terms of you know, her perception of of her win? Uh, you know, I just don't. I just don't think that that's really going to happen. And I think it's it's really because I mean, I just don't think that the actual progressives themselves take enough credit for this. I mean, I, you know, I keep saying this, but I think it's true. I mean, I, I, it's great that Bernie and Warren and these people are out there now. But you know what? I mean, they got elected because progressives put them in office, right. not because, you know, they were just, you They know, snuck in and changed right, their... Right, or they had right. some great epiphany five years ago, and re, you know, or two years ago, and realized that they were great progressives. They were put in there because of people who were working hard for years to put people like them in, in, uh, yeah. in office, you know, so... So this is, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's kind of a missed opportunity for progressives to not, you know, take a little credit here and, 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 you know, maybe give it all to Bernie or Warren or whatever. And, you know, we have this tendency to get into this, you know, great man or great woman theory where, you know, it's all about yes. them and we love them and there are, you know, there are leaders and we worship them and all that. But, you know, that's really not how this stuff happens. They're following us. I, I think that's absolutely, you know, you know, uh, there are times where, um, I would critique, uh, Clinton and people would say, Oh, you're just calling her cold and calculated. I hope she's cold and calculated. I hope she's calculating well because the, uh, the playing field is such, it seems to me that there's not a lot of uh, Jeb Bush voters out there who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. 
Uh, I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that her change in policy is going. Let me put it this way. If they're open to voting for Hillary Clinton, they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton, uh, despite her policies. And they're going to end up voting down ticket for Republicans because they want some check uh, on her ability to do anything. But uh, I just don't think uh, that there's a lot of data out there to support that that middle is what it was, if it ever was that. And I think it's clear um, to the Clinton people that the base, this is going to be a base election. It's going to be a turnout election. And that if you're also thinking about two years down the road, if you really want to have the ability to have a presidency that is going to be active, you need to make sure that you have activated people so that they stick around and come out and understand the importance and have a motivation to come out in an off year election. And I think you're absolutely right about this. You know, people tend to forget like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Brown in the Senate and, uh, you know, uh, Tammy Baldwin and, uh, you know, and Feingold, I think could end up back in the Senate and Jeff Merkley. I mean, these people didn't spontaneously grow. Uh, they, they are a reflection of something that's happening. You tell me that it's I guess at the beginning of the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt and and Taft, the Republicans, oddly enough, the progressive Republicans, pushing back against the corporate aristocracy that rose during the Gilded Age in the 30 years that preceded that. And and, you know, the, the breaking up Standard Oil and all that kind of thing. And then the Republicans took over in 1920 with Harding on a platform of less government in business, more business in government. In other words, privatize and deregulate, which they did. And they dropped the top tax rate from 91 percent down to 25 percent, which brought us the roaring 20s and then the boom and the collapse in 1929. And then uh, Franklin Roosevelt sort of rebooted this and said, "Okay, not only are we going to regulate corporations like Teddy did, we're now also going to uh, make sure that there's a social safety net for people with Social Security, unemployment insurance, child labor laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he laid out, his, you know, in the year before he died, on a new vision, which was, you know, his, his, uh, new, his new Bill of Rights, that everyone should have actually have a right to a job, that if capitalism fails to provide the job, the government would. It should be the employer of last resort, that everyone should have the right to housing. And if our capitalist system fails to provide housing, people would have access to housing. Everybody should have the right to an education. And Bernie, Bernie Sanders is talking about some of these things. Hillary Clinton is starting to talk about some of these things for that matter. But I'm curious in your mind, what are the you know, A, of course, I think we want to go back to undo Reaganomics and go back to some of the simple things like you have the right to join a union um, that, that, you know, that we had before Reagan. But what are the new things? What what has the 21st century brought us? What are the things that millennials are looking at and that everybody's looking at for that matter, saying, OK, these this is this should be our new direction? I think one of the biggest issues is climate change. Yes, um, this is a generation that unlike any before it is going to live most of their lives 
with the effects of a warming planet. I mean, when we take a look at some of the, the older politicians in Washington who say that it doesn't exist or, or that it does, but we can't do anything about it, they're going to be gone long before we start to see some of the really horrible effects of climate change that at this point are inevitable. I mean, we're no longer talking, you know, prevention, it's mitigation. It's how do we work around what we've already started? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that is priority number one. We deserve to have a planet that's habitable. I mean, that, that should idea. be, <laughs> I know that should be common sense. And yet it's something that we still have to fight for to say, look, you cannot destroy our planet. Uh, look, the technology exists. It may not be on the scale to provide clean energy everywhere all the time at this point. But if we actually put the investments in it, perhaps take away the billions in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, funnel that into renewables, we could get off of fossil fuels in the United States. We just refuse to. The technology does exist. We just won't do it. And so that's issue number one. And I think number two is we've got to get rid of Citizens United and get this corporate money out of politics. I mean, this is one of the big issues along with climate change for the millennial generation. All they have known uh, throughout their entire political lives is corporate influence going all the way back to, you know, the, the early Bush years with Halliburton and the secret energy meetings in Iraq, you know, before citizens United, this was a massive problem and it's only getting worse every, you know, year by year. So I, I, I think that's issue number two. And issue number three is we've got to bring back or start enforcing the corporate death penalty. When you have these corporations like we see on Wall Street who just build in corruption as the cost of doing business, right. they know that they can run these CDO and derivative scams and make billions of dollars, but only have to pay back millions in fines to the government and in civil lawsuits So what is to deter them from committing any kind of crime? They make money off of it. So we've got to bring that back. We've got to enforce it. And I think the the fourth major point is that we have a too big to fail problem in the United States, not just with Wall Street, but with the two party system, the Democrats and the Republicans. That's essentially all we have. They need to be broken up just like the banks do. Mm. We need more options in the United States. Uh, and I know we do have other options, but we need viable options. We need third, fourth, fifth, sixth party systems in order to really get change in this country. And I, I, I think the stranglehold of both the Democrats and the Republicans is not going to allow us to progress like we should. Yeah, I'm not hearing a lot about that. I mean, the, the, the Green Party has been banging that drum for a lot of years. There's now over 500, I believe, uh, communities, counties, or uh, no states, but cities, communities, or counties that are using uh, instant runoff voting, which is the, a, a variation on the way Australia and New Zealand deal with the problem of first-past-the-post winner-take-all elections. We are one of only seven democracies in the world that doesn't use proportional representation. And those are two of those seven. And, and, they, and, and when you don't have proportional representation, when you, it's you know, winner take all, whoever gets more than 50 percent, you end up with a two party system. This was Madison's horrible realization when he wrote Federalist Number 10. And the, you know, one solution that doesn't require rewriting the Constitution is ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting. 
Um, I, I'm surprised that that hasn't become more of a rallying cry. Well, you know, we, we get a lot of, you know, uh, tweets and emails and phone calls asking us, what do we do to make a viable third party in the United States? And uh, you, you kind of hit on it there. It's you start at the local level. Yeah. If you have somebody running for school board that's not a Democrat, not a Republican, you know, as long as it's a good candidate, that's where you start. You start at the small places and you build your way up. I think that a lot of the Democrats who've been around for a long time are more excited because they think that the movement will have died because they think of it as his movement. They think that he tricked young people into supporting these policies. I don't think anybody could have done that. I don't think Bernie could have done that. The only reason Bernie worked this time is because those people were there waiting for a Bernie to speak to them. Yes. And that movement, especially the young people, developed over the past two years, four years, six years. And they they learned the right economic message, that, or they, they learned what needs to be done to fix the economy, even as they were being told that the economy is, is doing much better now. And they know that we need to change our strategy towards international terrorism. We need to push for peace, even though they've been told to be scared every single day. Um, they've been told to conform in the way that past Democrats have, and yet even without a Bernie prior to a year ago, they were ready with the right positions. And those people are not going to become conservative tomorrow. They still are there and they still want another politician like Bernie Sanders. They're there for when he speaks in the future and they're there for other politicians as well. TYTnetwork.com slash join wolf-pack.com. They think we're done. We're just getting started, brothers. Okay. And so, uh, I can't begin to tell you. I know it sounds they'll they won't believe it, right? They meeting the the regular usual suspects on TV and stuff. They'll say, "Oh, these delusional guys. They've been delusional all along, right?" The best is yet to come. Okay, right. the fight has yet begun. Okay, so this was the the warning shot across the bow, and like John said, they didn't take it seriously. They think like, "Oh, a bunch of young kids stop playing video games and smoking pot," and Bernie tricked them. Into thinking that they could do something, and then you know, I think I want to add something that that's very important. Somebody, and I, I'm sorry, I forget who, but some, one of you guys in the audience uh, said something that I really struck a chord with me. There, this generation that voted for Hillary Clinton is used to losing. <laughs> yes, they're used to. They have mm. earned their cynicism and their skepticism because for 40 long years they've done nothing but lose. Mm-hmm. So when someone comes up and says, no, I actually think we can win, in their experience, that's outrageous. Progressives don't win. Their job is to get their ass kicked by conservatives, right? Because they grew up in the era of big money. So when Princeton did that study and said, you know, 1,800 policy positions over 20 years, public policy has, uh, is not at all affected by public opinion. You lost your democracy. You know when that started? When they started tracking? 
not in uh, after in, in 2010 after Citizens United. They were tracking from 1981 to 2002. They started tracking in 1981. We'd already lost our democracy back then. And I've told you this a thousand times. You know why? 1976, Buckley v. Vallejo, 1978, uh, uh, Bellotti. Those two decisions said money is speech, corporations are human beings, and hence corporations have the right to spend unlimited money in politics. Now, Citizens United put that on stairs, but they didn't need Citizens United. They'd already won. Mm -hmm. It shot a dead horse. So let me give you another stunning fact. And Represent Us had a great, great video about this. And it just, it's mind-boggling. Okay, the top 200 corporations involved in politics that do lobbying. You know how much they spent over the last five years? $5.8 billion. Well, that's a lot of money, right? Now, Hillary Clinton would tell you that's for their health, that they didn't expect any favors right. returned for that $5.8 billion. Because <laughs> they like to give away billions of dollars and not return, get any re- return on investment. Silly top corporations in the world, right? Maybe they're altruistic. There is no such thing as an altruistic corporation. Now, you want me to tell you what the reality is? You know how much they got back from that from the government? Those same two hundred uh, companies they put in five point eight billion. Oh, but they only got back four point four trillion. Wow! Just those two hundred companies. They got back four point four trillion dollars. That's what happens when you privately finance elections. The people who finance those elections, those private corporations and citizens, are the only ones who win. That same Princeton and Northwestern study. Direct correlation between special interest and economic elite and public policy. So I'll give you, I'm going to break it down more because it's amazing. Do you know that if um, 0% of the American people, that's the bottom 90%, okay, in that study, yeah, but let's call the American people because the other economic elite have are in a different ballpark, obviously. Okay, so the overwhelming majority of the American people, if 0% of them want a policy in a democracy, that policy should have no chance, right? right. You know what percentage chance it has? 30%. Okay. Wow. If 100% of the American people want something, you know what chance it has of success? 30%. Wow. So whether nobody in America wants it, or everybody in America wants it, it doesn't matter. It's the same 30%. But if you go to the economic elites, the ones who privately finance our elections, if 0% of them want it, legislation has 0% chance of succeeding. If the rich veto it, it doesn't matter how much you want it, there's no chance that it passes. Now, if 100% of the economic elite want it, no, it's not 100% chance that they get it. But it's 61% chance. Okay? So if the economic elite agree on something, a very good chance they're going to get exactly what they want. If they don't want something, like, for example, tax increases on them, no, you don't get those. End of the conversation, because we don't live in a democracy. So the Washington, so yes, people grew up in that for 40 years. They think that's reality. To them, they say, get real, get real. Yep. We lost. We lost. Just realize it. Sit on your couch, do nothing, and vote for the establishment, right? That's what we've been doing for 40 years. Every time we try to fight, we lost, right? So you guys are being idealistic, unpragmatic by trying to win. All you're supposed to do is lose gracefully by electing people like Obama and Clinton, okay? And then they'll take Bush's tax cuts, which Bush couldn't make permanent, and Obama made 94% of it permanent, and then bragged that he did tax increases for 6% of the 
of the money affected. Okay, so that's what they're used to, but that's not what we're used to. Okay, and you know what happens? At some point, the tide turns. It happened in civil rights. You think they got it overnight in civil rights? They fought for a hundred years. It happened for women's rights. They fought for seventy years. Now, I'm not saying it's going to take seventy or a hundred years. First of all, when the internet age. Second of all, as I've said a million times, once women's rights movement got into the streets, it only took seven years. By the way, we just did Democracy Spring. We all just got arrested a couple of weeks ago. So there we are. We're in the streets. We're doing civil disobedience. So we're coming, okay? And at some point, the fever breaks. At some point, the tide turns and history gets made. And that history is not impossible. It's inevitable. And so Bernie Sanders' campaign here, and I've got to say one more thing about Bernie Sanders as a person, okay, is that Bernie... He stepped up. So as everybody else, and I and I like all those other guys, all the progressives that are real, the Russ Feingolds, the Elizabeth Warrens, those are all wonderful people, right? As they were fiddling, should we, should we challenge Hillary Clinton? Should we not challenge Hillary Clinton? You know what Bernie did? He said, here I am, okay? I'm Bernie Sanders. I've been fighting for this for 40 years. Oh, Hillary Clinton's unbeatable? That's fine. I'm going to fight for our positions. I'm going to stand up. You have to give Bernie Sanders all the credit in the world because he stepped up and he fought for us. And that's why we love him. Okay. And so now back to the movement. This movement almost took down as big a Goliath as I have ever seen in politics. And with, in the beginning, no money, no support, no structure, infrastructure, nothing, right? You think we're going to lose the next election? You think we're going to lose the next fight? I think they don't stand a chance. Twenty twenty, by twenty twenty, we're going to be so much stronger than them that it's going to shock them. They're not going to believe what hit them. So I could be wrong. Hasn't happened yet. Okay, I've been telling you exactly what's happening ahead of time. I don't tell you that because I want to brag. Partly true, but. But mainly because I want to let you know, when I tell you to get excited, I tell you that we're going to win. I'm not kidding. I'm not BSing you. I've proven it over and over again. We're going to win. Okay. So yes, tonight's a bad night, but we're just getting started, and this movement is on fire. And so we felt the burn here, uh, but that's just the beginning. There's an inferno on the way. We just heard clips featuring Jim Hightower discussing how, as Bernie's campaign came to a close, his revolution was just getting started at the People's Summit. Tom Hartman talked with Farron Cousins about how Bernie has changed politics for the millennial generation. Democracy Now! played a piece of Naomi Klein speaking at the People's Summit. The Young Turks talked about Bernie's plan for the future. Jim Hightower argued that it's the bottom-up nature of Bernie's campaign that will ensure its strength going forward. On the media interview interviewed Nathan J. Robinson about why pragmatic voting isn't an abandonment of one's values, but an expression of them. Sam Cedar talked with Digby on the Majority Report about changes to the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton that the primary campaign created. 
Tom Hartman talked more with Farron Cousins about the direction millennials want to see the country go, and finally, we just heard the Young Turks issue a warning to the establishment that the revolution is still on its way. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Allison from Boulder, Colorado. In response to the most recent episode, I totally agree that the minimum wage does not come close to covering even the bare necessities of living. I really think that 15 actually is even lowballing it right now. I'm also really glad that this episode came out when it did, because it provides me with a great segue to another very serious problem with the minimum wage. There is a section and I think it was mentioned several times in the show, in the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 that allows companies to apply for a waiver that enables them to pay workers with less than minimum wage. Migrant workers and wait staff in restaurants and people with disabilities seem to be the majority of people affected by this. However, well, migrant workers and wage staff know that all of the people that they're working with are paid below minimum wage. People with disabilities are a little bit different. Uh, there's sort of an added sting for those with disabilities because in companies that normally do pay workers at least minimum wage, still apply for those waivers so that they can pay their employees with disabilities less. So while companies that do this look on the surface like they're being progressive and like they're helping people, they're actually only doing this because they have a financial incentive to do so. At the same time, they're also essentially sending the message, intended or not, that workers with disabilities are inherently worth less as human beings than their able co-workers. In 2013, Representative Greg Harper of Mississippi introduced the Fair Wages for Workers with Disabilities Act of 2013, which was designed to remove that section from the FLSA. It didn't pass, but now Republicans and Democrats are trying again. The TIME Act, which is currently being introduced in Congress, stands for Transition to Meaningful Employment, and it will, quote, bar the Labor Department from issuing new certificates, the waivers, allowing the payment of sub-minimum wage and would phase out the use of existing certificates within three years. So I would like to announce an activist call to action. Please contact your congressperson and tell them that passing this act is absolutely crucial to the lives and well-being of all workers who are paid below minimum wage. Also, tell everyone you can about this issue. Please be sure to read the article entitled Democrats, Republicans, Urged and Subminimum Wage posted on the website Disability Scoop for more information and share that article in whatever way you can on any social media network that you're on. We need all the help we can get. People with disabilities are not worth less than able people. Thanks and I love the show and call again sometime. Hey, Jay, this is Greg from North Kakalaki. Listen, I wanted to call in in response to the recent voicemail from Wade about automation. 
Now, I'm an engineer, and I've worked a lot in manufacturing, so while I'm not an expert per se, I've got some knowledge on the subject. There's quite a bit to say, so thanks in advance for listening. I know this might run long. Firstly, Wade started with and grew out of comments on minimum wage. It's important to remind everyone that linking the two is really a scare tactic. Whether companies are required to pay a living wage or not, automation is still coming. They just want to scare everyone into working for nothing in the meantime. Automation is a product of innovation and progress. It isn't something that's going to be stopped. Secondly, in my opinion, future automation is not going to be the catastrophe many people predict. Innovation has been historically resisted as a job killer. The tractor, for example, certainly made farming more efficient, requiring fewer hands, and yet we do not blame it for economic collapse, despite having had its own doomsayers in the time. When innovations eliminate jobs, the market adapts, new jobs are created, and society moves forward. Just think about how many entire industries exist today that did not exist when the tractor came along. Now, those new industries did not appear overnight, but neither did tractors appear in every field overnight. And the same is true for automation. As an example, the next major industry expected to see automation is fast food, made more efficient through kiosk ordering. It already exists at places like Sheets gas stations, and it's being tested at places like McDonald's and Wendy's. But these machines are not cheap. They still have bugs and other deficiencies, and they take time to manufacture It isn't a change that can happen overnight. Even if we give everyone a living wage tomorrow, their jobs won't be replaced by machines the following week. Now, Wade, you may already know this, and I suspect it may be why you're thinking about automation, but after the restaurant industry, the next industry expected to see automation is the trucking industry, and I can see why it's a concern. It's not happening tomorrow, though. The technology is rapidly improving, but it's not there yet. We'll see self-driving Uber cars before then, and in fact, news just broke this morning that those are coming to Pittsburgh very soon. Furthermore, you know that before self-driving trucks are allowed on the road in mass, we're going to need rules and regulations. That could take years to sort out, I wager, and they'll probably be allowed only to carry things that are like non-hazardous materials at first. You probably know better than I do, Wade at least, that a rig is expensive. One that drives itself would probably be something like double. Companies are going to be slow to invest in them, and manufacturers will be slow to make them. None of this is to say, however, that your concerns aren't legitimate. In fact, based on how huge the trucking industry is, I'd say it has the greatest opportunity for a negative impact. Not a lot of folk realize just how many people we have working hard to move our stuff from one place to another. But that brings me to the last reason I think this will be okay. You see, we have ways of adapting to change as opposed to just stopping. One thing we ought to do, now more than ever, is look at guaranteed basic income for everyone in the U.S. This will especially help people stay on their feet during transition between a fading profession and a new one. And speaking of transition, we've got to invest more in education, not just improving our primary education systems, and eliminating financial barriers to higher education, but investing in adult education systems as well. If someone, quote-unquote, loses their job to automation, it shouldn't be no trouble for them to go learn a new skill. And one more thought, which I know comes with all sorts of caveats and bones to pick, 
But think about this. If we as a society are using technology and innovation to become more efficient, why shouldn't we consider working less? If David, for example, has a factory job and he's working six days a week for 60 hours, why not four days a week for 30 hours? And then you can hire Tom to work four days a week for 30 hours. You still get 60 hours at work for the factory, but you have much higher morale and you'll be able to give Tim a good job after he lost his to an automated kiosk. I hope I've given Wade and other listeners a few new ideas or at least a new perspective on the automation situation. So thanks and y'all have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Another quick update on the fundraiser. As predicted, we have surpassed our dollar amount goal. Uh, This was all raising money for 350.org, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, and other sort of cycling and uh, sustainability-focused organizations through Climate Ride. So huge thanks to everyone who donated money, helped get us to our goal. We are now up to 145 total donors. In the middle of the fundraiser, I decided things are looking good, things are going so well, let's go for 200 total donors, regardless of the amount they donate. So uh, we're within 55 donors of that goal, and just a couple weeks till the end of the month to get those in. I would just, uh, you know, that's that's just for good measure. That's uh, that's the gravy on top. So I would love to have, you know, if you can donate five bucks, two bucks, whatever you can donate. I would love just to see that total number of donors uh, get up to 200. And of course, the two-for-one deal, the Climate Ride and Best of Luck membership, which of course comes with bonus content and that warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you know that you're supporting independent media. All of that goes just through the end of August, and then that deal is done. Uh, All the free t-shirts go away. You can't even buy them after August. So, If you're interested in taking advantage of any of that, uh, that is coming to a close very soon. So head over to bestoftheleft.com, click on the big summer fundraiser banner that you cannot possibly miss to take advantage of that. And of course, thanks to the most recent group of donors, Connie, Phil, Phyllis, Brittany, Travis, Molly, Megan, Mark, Stephen, Adam, Chris, and four anonymous donors. Okay, now hearkening back for just a moment to the previous episode, that that episode was all focused on happiness with a lot of focus on gratitude in particular. And so I said, you know, if you have any thoughts on what you are grateful for, what's making you happy these days, and that would be a great thing for us to share and and sort of uh, infuse a little bit of positivity into this political show that is not always very positive. So, I will reiterate that call. If you have any thoughts on that topic, please uh, get that in. But then today's episode got me thinking in another direction, you know, sort of another positive forward thinking, forward looking episode. And so the question uh, for today's show is, uh, it's, it's very similar to a conversation that you may very well recall that we talked for a while a couple months ago, about our theories of change as related to the election. And that was basically premised on uh, how are you going to vote and why, and how does your vote fall into a theory of change that 
actively and concretely moves society and, and the country in the direction you want it to head. So, so this conversation is similar, except I want our focus to be on the day after election day. What is your theory of change starting on the day after the election? Uh, I've certainly been hearing a lot about strategies and, and, and thoughts and focuses that people want to, uh, emphasize the inside strategy, the outside strategy, a combination of the two, uh, focus on building up third parties, focus on uh, electing Bernie Kratz in 2018. You know, what are you going to do and what do you think needs to be done collectively? So, you know, the outside strategy is continue to focus on money and politics or, you know, continue to protest on your most important issue or a whole collection of issues that you think are important uh, or uh, the, the intersectionality of many issues as, as we like to talk about you know it's it's certainly better to recognize those intersections and focus on lots of different things and, and bring those sort of organizations and focuses together than to keep everyone siloed. But, you know, are, are you continue to work and protest against climate change or work and protest against police brutality or, you know, pick your issue? Uh, maybe you're going to focus on that. Uh, are you going to focus on voting reform? Maybe, I mean, not only do we need a lot of voting reform just for the sanctity of the vote and to make it fair, but that can also lead to third-party viability. Maybe that's your issue, what you would like to focus on, and that can be a, a path towards third-party viability. And then there's the inside track. There's the, you know, let's focus and work to get a whole bunch of Bernie Kratz elected in 2018, or looking even further forward, an, another census and another redistricting is coming in 2020. So the states need to be ready for that census and the redistricting, uh, as things are now, maybe you're familiar, Democrats, whether you love them or hate them, they generally get more votes nationally than the Republicans, and yet, miraculously, they elect fewer representatives to Congress. That is 100% due to redistricting and gerrymandering, and the gerrymandering is completely controlled at the state level by state legislatures and state governors and the state, uh, you know, the, the secretary of state's offices in each state. Um, it's a complete and utter mess. It's an embarrassment. And I'm not saying the Democrats wouldn't do the same thing in reverse, uh, but the current state of things is that uh, Republicans are in control of more states and have gerrymandered the districts in such a way that, as I say, Democrats generally get more votes and elect fewer representatives. It is profoundly anti-democratic the way it's working now. So just, just a thought there. Maybe that's where you want to put your focus. Anyway, what I would love to hear is your thoughts. What do you want to do and what do you want to see happen starting the day after the election? Keep the comments coming in 202-999-3991.
That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And Stories and forget who it is before.